This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 through 33, continuing our study through Matthew's gospel. This morning we are in verse, verses 26 through 33, so hear the reading of God's word. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, rather Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And are not, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me, Before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we pray this morning that you would sanctify us by the truth. Truth of your word. Because your word is truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying this passage, this Discourse of our Lord Jesus in which he is speaking to the twelve, preparing them for a mission of itinerant preaching in the towns and villages of Israel. Jesus gave them very specific instructions for how they were to carry out this work. And then, as we saw last week, he reminds them that they are going out into hostile territory. They're going out into a battlefield. This will not be easy. And as Jesus speaks to them, he obviously has in mind not just their their current short-term mission, but he also speaks with a view toward the church's life and work in the world as it carries out the Great Commission, Uh, things that apply to us even in our own day. But having spoken to them of the kind of persecution, the kind of opposition that they could expect to face, he recognizes the reaction that they might have. In fact, as Jesus was speaking to his disciples, he had the benefit of seeing their faces. As he spoke to them about the prospect of being dragged before kings and governors and synagogues and Sanhedrins and even having their own dearly loved family members turn against them and those who heed their message, And as he looked at their faces, no doubt he saw a reaction, a reaction that might best be described as fear. And if he were looking in our faces as we read or as we hear or think about these verses, he might very well in our eyes 
see the same reaction that he saw in the eyes of the twelve. Maybe disguised, maybe carefully hidden, yet Jesus would detect perhaps just that, just that hint of fear at the prospect of the kinds of things that he is discussing here. And if you know your own heart, know yourself, you know that there is in your own heart, in your own mind, a fear of men to a degree. There is, to put it another way, a regard in our own hearts, our own minds, for what other people think of us. I know that. I know that because it's true of me. I know that because it's part of human nature to be concerned about what people think of us. We want people to like us. We want people to respect us. We want people to esteem us. And it concerns us, bothers us. It maybe even frightens us at the prospect that they might not like us but dislike us, that they might not think of us with respect but rather with contempt, that they might not esteem us but rather think of us with disgust. And yet that's the prospect that Jesus sets before his disciples here, a disgust that might even go beyond what they think or even what they say to what they might do against the disciples, what they might do against us. And so Jesus, seeing that reaction, addresses it. And he addresses it for them, he addresses it for us here in the passage that is before us. That's why he begins in verse 26 perhaps reacting to what he sees in the eyes of his disciples. So have no fear of them. Now, he's just finished talking to them about the reaction to Jesus. They react to us, as we saw last week, because they reacted to Jesus with hostility, with contempt, with dislike. And Jesus says, we, the disciples, the students, are not above our master, our teacher. And so if they react to Jesus that way, what makes us think they wouldn't react to us that way? So it's to be expected, at least to a degree, although not sought. We don't provoke it or look for it, but we are not surprised by it. And so in verse 26, Jesus says, so have no fear of them. Jesus isn't saying they're, they're not to be disregarded. They're, he's not saying here that we should take them lightly, those who would oppose us. In fact, he recognizes that the authorities have real power. And those who love us because of the love and the bond of affection have real power over us. And people will use this power against Jesus. They would use this power against the disciples. They would use the power against us. So when Jesus says, so don't be afraid, he's saying, well, there's nothing to be afraid of. Enemies are real. He just says, so don't fear them. It's not that they're not fearful at times, but he's saying, don't fear them. And he goes on to explain how this can be done. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to consider uh, four reasons that Jesus gives while we can be bold, while even in the face of what might be frightening, we can nevertheless be bold for Jesus. And the first reason that we have for boldness is, in a word, truth. Uh, we know the truth about God. We know the truth about Christ. And therefore, we know the truth about reality. Well, let's look at what Jesus says. First of all, the fact that in terms of truth, what is hidden, what is unknown will come to light. Jesus says in verse 26, so have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
A little bit vague. What is it Jesus is referring to here? Well, quite possibly he's referring to their persecution, the kinds of things that people do in secret uh, to Christians have through the years, uh, you know, and under totalitarian regimes where uh, Christians uh, disappear in the night, that kind of thing. Uh, Jesus could well be saying here that um, whatever they might do, it will become known. Those things that they try to keep hidden, those things that they try to do in secret cannot be kept hidden. The Lord sees them, and he will expose and bring these things to light. Certainly we've seen that through history uh, as things that at one time or another were kept secret or tried to uh, to keep under wraps have become known, and others have become aware of them. But more importantly than that, of course, the Father knows. The Father is aware of those kinds of things, actions of the persecutors, as well as the lives of the faithful. Uh, how frightening to be alone, to be uh, under persecution apart from the knowledge of anyone. Uh, is it worth it? Well, yes, because the Father knows. And those things that are hidden at one time or another will be revealed. And if not in this life, then certainly at the last judgment. Well, nothing covered that will not be revealed also applies to the truths of Christ, the truths of the gospel. In verse 27, Jesus says, What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. What you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Jesus is sending them out to be bold with a message, to make the message known. And Jesus is saying the things that I've taught you here in relative obscurity, you are to go out and you are to make those things known to the world. We see that in their ministry. The ministry of Jesus was in many ways much more quiet, uh, hidden, than that of his disciples. That's not to say it was unknown. There was obviously a great stir about Jesus. But it was the disciples who took it throughout the whole known world, while as Jesus' ministry uh, was contained within Judea. So what is hidden will become known. Uh, the truths of the gospel that Jesus taught his disciples, we are to boldly proclaim and make known the truth of the gospel. And so this is the first reason that Jesus gives us, is that of everything becoming known, that of the task of making the truth of Christ known. Now, in things becoming known, it does have a view ultimately toward the final judgment, when everything will be exposed, everything will be made known, whatever is known or unknown in, in the time of history. And that's an encouragement to us. Both the, 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 the foul deeds of those who persecute Christians as well as the faithfulness of Christians, many of whom we know and many tales of their faithfulness and bravery we don't know and may not know until, until glory, until judgment day. But we need to recognize that there will be a reckoning. There will be an accounting for those who oppose God's people. You know, our faithfulness can take place because we're not just looking at this life. You know, Paul, um, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, a passage which Paul Copan uh, referred to in the Aletheia Forum last night. Many of you were here for that. A really good time. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that if only for this life we have trusted in Christ, we are of all men to be most pitied. You know, if Christianity doesn't go beyond the grave, doesn't go into eternity, <laughs> if it's just for this life, we're to be pitied. And what about those Christians who died for Christ if it was only for this life? Well, that's foolishness. But if there is a reckoning, if there is judgment day, if these deeds will become known, then faithfulness makes sense because the implications of it, 
the, the reward for it. Go beyond the grave and may not come till beyond the grave. So truth is one reason to be bold, to be faithful. We know reality. The world in its mocking is out of touch with reality. It doesn't recognize that judgment day is coming. It doesn't recognize that God in his grace has, in Christ, brought in the day of salvation now. They are the ones out of touch with reality. We know the truth. So that's the first reason for boldness, to remember the truth, the truth of Christ, the truth that we are to make known, the truth that a judgment and accounting is coming, and everything will be known, everything will be revealed. Second reason to be bold is fear, in a word. Verse 28, you say, well, wait a minute, we're talking about getting rid of fear here. We're talking about being bold in the face of fear. Well, yes, but fear in a different direction. Look at verse 28, second reason that Jesus gives. And he says, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Don't fear people who can kill you, kill your body. Once you're dead, they can't do anything more to you. They can't harm your soul. They can't do anything to your soul. You're beyond them. They can't touch you. Say, wait a minute. I don't want someone killing my body. I don't want to be dead. Well, are you a Christian? Are you a materialist? You think when you die, that's it? You think when you die, you'll be with Christ? Paul said, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. It's a win-win. Live here in this world, you're living for Christ. Die here in this world, and you're with Christ. win when? That's the Christian point of view. The materialist point of view is you live here and then you die, you lose. And ultimately, everyone loses if this life is all there is. The Christian position is win-win. To live as Christ, to die is gain. Don't fear those who can kill the body and can do no more. Rather, uh, Jesus says to us here, fear him who can destroy both body, both soul and body in hell. The word there is Gehenna which was a reference to the trash heap outside Jerusalem, the Valley of Hinnom, where they burned their trash. It was always, you know, garbage, always debris out there smoldering and burning, some smoke going up. It kind of took on the, the symbol uh, for hell, for the judgment, the, the eternal fire in hell. And uh, what we need is a new fear. You see, William Grinnell, the Puritan preacher and writer said, we fear men so much because we fear God so little. John Witherspoon, Presbyterian minister, signer of the Declaration of Independence, said, it is only the fear of God that can deliver us from the fear of man. Are you afraid of people? Because you don't fear God enough. Fear God. Really, fear God. And you'll fear no man. You can fear everybody. You can fear one. If you fear the one, the one God, you don't have to fear all the other billions of people on the earth. Now, fear is an interesting word when we use it of God, especially as Christians, because for us, judgment is past. If you were a believer, the judgment happened at Calvary. If you were a believer, you're on the other side already. You're in that eternal life that God has promised, that has already begun. You're now a citizen of heaven. It's not complete, but it has begun. But you've passed through that judgment. And the victory has been won by Jesus. The verdict for you is righteous in Christ. Come on in. We know that. 
That's already happened for us. And so when it talks about fearing God, there is an aspect of fear, of being afraid of God, because he is an awesome being, far beyond the ability of our mind to comprehend him. Though we can know him truly, we don't know him comprehensively or exhaustively. It would be frightening if God were to manifest himself here. We would be afraid. But that fear is also a, a respectful, awe-filled regard for God as our Father, as the one who not only is a consuming fire, but is the God of grace who sent his only Son for us. And so some have compared it to the fear a small child might have for his godly father, who's very big to him, very powerful to him, can be frightening to him, but also loves him dearly. And is committed to his well-being. And so it's that kind of fear that it's talking about here. But you see, we have to cultivate that fear of God or we'll forever be afraid of people and what people think of us and what they might do to us and what they might say about us. But if we fear God, it displaces that fear of man. And that's what we need. It's a snare. And so Jesus says, fear the one who can kill both soul and body in, in hell. So fear, a new fear, a fear of God, a right fear of God, displaces and pushes aside a fear of man. And we need to cultivate that, pray for, to God for that, seek that. Where do we get it? I suggest to you, you get it in the scriptures. The more you learn of God, the more you come to recognize who he is. Then all of his character, as he's portrayed biblically, we come to a not only better understanding of God, but a growing reverent fear of God, a fear of displeasing him, a fear of crossing him, and, and a passion to, to be with him and to live for him. So truth, fear, another reason that Jesus gives here is love, especially the love of God for us. We just talked about being afraid in the sense of fearing God, displacing fear of man, but then Jesus sort of gives us the other side of the coin, the great love of God toward us. Look at 29. Jesus asks a rhetorical question. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Uh, the word here indicates that uh, the two sparrows would be sold for a fraction of a day's wage. One sparrow would be worth about one thirty-second of a day's wage for a laborer there in, uh, in, in Palestine, Judea. And even so, even having so little economic value, the father is aware of those sparrows. He keeps up with them. He knows. He's, Jesus says not one of them will fall to the ground. Not one of them will come down in light apart from God, apart from his knowledge, apart from his being aware of that little bird. And Jesus says, verse 30, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Again, God's attention to detail, to the little things. And so Jesus says in verse 31, you, and it's, it's such an obvious statement. You can imagine he's only smiling as he says it. So fear not, therefore, you are of much more value than many sparrows. Obviously, you're, you, my, my friends, my disciples, are a lot more valuable than a few birds, or even many birds. Uh, and if God knows the birds, if God is so aware of the details of your life that even knows the number of hairs on your head, some of you that may be more comfort than it is to others, uh, then surely God is aware and with you, when someone attacks you verbally, when someone assaults you physically, when someone drags you into prison for the sake of Christ, it's not unknown. Your father loves you. You are not outside his love. Jesus, what happened? God, what happened? 
How, why is this happening to me? Do you not know? Do you not care? Jesus says he knows when a sparrow falls to the ground, when it lights on the ground. He knows how many hairs are on your head. He knows every detail of your life. And of course he knows. And he's with you. It's not outside his will. Things have not gone awry. The world has not fallen off its foundation, and now God has gone off to do something else. And Jesus is not saying that this means they won't be persecuted. Doesn't He's not undoing what he's already told them. He's just reminding them that the Father loves them. Even in that trial, even in that opposition, even in that affliction, the Lord's still with them. And he loves them. He has not abandoned them. And so, truth that we have, the 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 fear now for the Lord rather than man, uh, an awareness of the love of God even in our persecution, and it's his will that we go through that. But then the last reason that Jesus mentions is the whole principle of loyalty. Uh, verses 32 through 33. Uh, and that's we understand loyalty, uh, even here on the, among human relationships. But this is what Jesus says, verse 32. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now we need to be careful we don't misunderstand this. This is not a uh, quid pro quo, a tit for tat arrangement. You acknowledge me, I'll acknowledge you. You deny me, I'm going to deny you. That's how it works out. They say, well, you know, one time I, I did not mention that I was a Christian, and I was guilty about that. Does that mean Jesus is going to deny me before the Father? Well, you've probably denied Christ in all kinds of ways, far more than you know, as have I. In one way or another, uh, perhaps the blatant occasions you may be aware of. But what Jesus is saying is this, and the word there acknowledge is the word confess, uh, to profess him before men. Uh, the word to deny or reject him before men. Uh, I think a case study is in order here. Who denied Jesus? And it was written in scripture for all the ages to read of, unlike yours. Peter. Peter denied knowing Jesus. And yet Jesus restored him. Jesus brought him back in. It was a serious thing. And in fact, in the history of the church, especially in the early centuries, um, where there was persecution, well, there's still persecution today, but in those cases where persecution occurred, uh, the whole question of what to do with a believer who denied Christ, professing believer who denied Christ and then wanted to repent and be brought back in, it was a, it was a real question for leaders in the church. How do we address people who did that? And it's Jesus saying, if you do that once, you've had it. I'm going to tell the Father, I don't even know you. Well, I think we have to look at this as sort of a trend rather than a, a single occurrence. If you are a Christian, if you really are a Christian, you will acknowledge Christ. There may be an instance or two where you don't speak up where you should have. But if you are a believer, if you've been a believer for any length of time especially, you will acknowledge Christ. You love him. You know his truth. You fear the Father. You want to be loyal to Jesus because of what he's done for you. If you are the kind of person who consistently refuses to acknowledge you are a believer, and particularly if your life is so devoid of any evidence of God's grace that it never comes up, yeah, then you have to worry. I mean, Jesus did say in the Sermon on the Mount, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do this and do that in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. 
And that's, that's a reality. But I think we have to recognize that Jesus is not so much describing that if we do this, then he'll do this, as it is if we are a believer, we will acknowledge him. And he will acknowledge us to his Father. If we're not a believer, we're not going to confess Christ. We're not going to identify with Jesus. And we're certainly not going to, not going to take flack for being what we're not, a Christian. And that's the point that Jesus is making here. Uh, not that a one-time failure can sink you, uh, but just the reality of the case. A believer will con- confess Christ, will acknowledge Christ. Uh, and an unbeliever really will not, and it's the unbeliever who is going, whom Jesus is going to deny before his Father in heaven. Uh, and Jesus is the one who, who kept this for us as everything else. Ultimately, it's not our faithfulness in confessing, but rather Jesus' faithfulness in confessing uh, the Father to the world and his dying for our sins of unfaithfulness. Uh, that is the record on which we stand. So the question is not so much what you say or don't say. It's are you a believer? Are you a Christian and willing to acknowledge that before men? Or are you not and therefore uh, keep quiet or even deny knowing Christ altogether? But even if we've done that, as Peter did, uh, and if we really are a believer, the Holy Spirit will convict us about that and bring us to a real repentance and seeking God's forgiveness. John Chrysostom uh, was an early church leader in the 300s, and he became a hermit. Uh, in fact, he injured his health. He was so severe in his own self-discipline uh, in A.D. 373. Um, but after his health broke, he returned to the city, actually became a pastor, preacher, very well-known. Chrysostom was not a given name. It was a, a nickname given to him that took, that meant uh, the golden-mouthed. Um, in his ministry. Well, he realized after his time in the wilderness, his isolation and just the rough and tumble of ministry that he could stand for anything. Well, in AD 398, he was appointed patriarch of the city of Constantinople. Um, Unfortunately, his zeal there antagonized the empress Eudocia, uh, and she had him exiled. And he returned from exile, and things went that way again, and he was exiled Again, well, how did he respond to this? A very hard thing to endure, hard thing to live with. This is uh, John Chrysostom's reply. How could he respond to such a thing? This is what he says. What can I fear? Will it be death? But you know that Christ is my life and that I shall gain by death. Will it be exile? But the earth and all its fullness are the Lord's. Poverty I do not fear. Riches I do not sigh for. And from death I do not shrink. You struggle with the fear of man. You're anxious about what people might think of you or even do to you because you are a Christian. Well, I'd suggest to you that we need to learn from John Chrysostom. We need to imbibe his spirit. And we can, as long as you remember that truth will come to light, either in this world, in this life, or certainly on Judgment Day. You can, as you learn to fear God instead of man. You can, as you uh, let the love of God, the Father, overwhelm you. And you can, as you determine, by God's grace, to confess Christ before people. Come what may. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus, we recognize as you teach us here that reality of persecution and opposition is there. But Lord, I pray that you would help us not to fear. Not to fear man at any rate. Help us to be bold. Not obnoxious. Not objectionable. But graciously, faithfully, resolutely. Be bold for Christ. Lord, take away the fear of man. Replace it with fear of the Father. The love of you, O God. Make us bright and shining light. We pray in Jesus' name. For his sake. Amen.